When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Revolution. Industrial revolution. 60. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Leslie Chang. Today on the show, a conversation that we recorded back in March between producer Mike Osborne and John Holdren. Holdren's credentials are extensive, but most recently he served for eight years as President Obama's senior advisor on science and technology. In this interview, he discusses how he first met Obama and how he and the former president collaborated on policy decisions. Holdren also shares his worries about the Trump administration and the tenuous role of facts and science in their policymaking. One quick note before we get started. In the course of the conversation, Mike references a 2014 segment from The Daily Show in which John Holdren is testifying in front of Congress, patiently answering questions about climate change. We'll link to that clip in the show notes. Go check it out. It's a good one. And without further ado, here's Mike and John Holdren. I'm John Holdren. I was President Obama's science and technology advisor from January 2009 until January 2017. I'm now back at Harvard University uh, as a professor both in the Kennedy School of Government and the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences. I have to ask, um, I doubt it happened, but did you and President Obama ever discuss the Anthropocene? Well, we discussed uh, issues that are very much related to it. I don't think we used the term Anthropocene, Damn. but... Uh, Actually, my presidential address for the AAAS in 2007 talked a lot about uh, the respects in which humans had become a global ecological force and what the implications of that were. And the president, as president-elect, had actually read that paper, and it was a major focus of my job interview with uh, President Obama about whether I was going to become his science advisor. Oh, excellent. I'm going to ask a little bit more about that in a second because I'm curious. But so he never weighed in on whether the geologic age begins in the Industrial Revolution or in the Agricultural he, Revolution? He, he did not weigh in on that, no. Okay. Uh, well, next time you see him, maybe you can mention it. So I actually, uh, I want to go back. I read that you first met President Obama at, at a dinner in 2006. It was 
2006 or maybe 2007, uh, he was then a senator, and he had decided that he wanted to learn more about the climate change issue. And his uh, one of his favorite methods of learning more about an issue was to assemble a dinner with a group of people, typically eight, who were knowledgeable about that issue from different perspectives. So he had his political director organize a private dinner to talk about climate change. And there were two academics. There were, were two uh, industry folks, one an oil company CEO, the other an electric utility CEO. There were two uh, NGO folks, one from the Union of Concerned Scientists, one from the Natural Resources Defense Council. And there were two folks with experience in government dealing with climate change as climate change negotiators and, and the like. And he orchestrated a three-hour conversation over dinner about climate change, extracting from all of those participants the insights that they had to, to offer. And at the end of the dinner, he said, uh, well, let me see if I got this right. And he had never taken any notes. There was no piece of paper in front of him. But he proceeded to produce a synthesis of the conversation, speaking in complete sentences and even paragraphs, that was better than the conversation. <laughs> so I, I knew at that point that I was in the presence of an extraordinary intellect, uh, not just an extraordinary politician, but an extraordinary intellect. Wow. Were there any moments from that dinner that you know stick in your memory other than other than that synthesis moment? Did he ask any yeah. questions? That's oh, absolutely. He asked yeah. a lot of penetrating questions along the way. When I say he orchestrated the conversation, he didn't just say go. He guided it and uh, guided it to extract what he wanted to extract from each of the perspectives present around the table. And I've seen him do that uh, many times since. Again, it's a favorite mode of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember many other moments, and one was I had the good fortune to be seated next to him at that dinner, and we had a conversation one-on-one for a while before he opened it up to the round table. And in the course of that conversation, he mentioned that the administration through which we were then uh, living was perhaps the most fact-averse uh, administration in memory. And, of course, this uh, was part of the stance that led him ultimately in his first inaugural address to say, I'm going to put science in its rightful place. I'm going to restore science to its rightful place in my administration because he felt it had not been in its rightful place in the previous one. Mm. I think we'll circle back to that towards the end of the conversation as well because I'm sort of curious to hear your thoughts about the role of facts and the role of science now that we're in 2017. But right. uh, before we get there, let's uh, let's talk about the job interview itself. What, how did it go down? I, my understanding is that you weren't, you know, a surprise pick. You had developed a relationship with President Obama, but, but you know, you mentioned uh, this job interview a second ago. So how did that go down? Well, it was, it was uh, again, a very pleasant experience. Uh, I had an hour with the president one-on-one in his transition office. My presidential address for the AAAS was on the top of his pile of reading on this very heavily stacked desk that he had. And uh, probably for the first half hour, at least, of the conversation, we talked about the substance of the paper, uh, the role of science and technology in uh, societal well-being and the ways in which science and technology are connected to the economy, to the environment, to energy, to climate change, to national and homeland security. And it was clear in that conversation that the president was deeply informed about those matters. You know, a lot of people uh, assume that the job of the science advisor to the president is to tutor the president on elementary aspects of science and technology, but this president was already so well-tutored that uh, most of our conversations, not just uh, in the job interview, but over the course of the next eight years, were about how to move the needle on issues where science and technology are important to society. 
so actually there's sort of a lot in that to me because I think that there's the sort of broad agenda of what areas need funding, what areas have deep policy implications that we need clearer answers on. But then there's also a sort of deeper philosophical question about uh, how important is science in people's lives these days? And I mean, were you talking about moving the needle on that latter category? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we agreed upon is that we have to do better in science, technology, engineering, and math education, starting at the K through 12 level, uh, and not just to educate the next generation of Nobel laureates, but to end up with the tech-savvy workforce that the jobs of the 21st century increasingly require. And most importantly, and the president understood this very clearly, to end up with the science-savvy citizenry that a democracy requires if it's going to work effectively in an era when more and more of the decisions in front of our elected leaders have science and technology content. Again, the president understood all that very clearly before I ever got near him. I get a lot of credit for tutoring the president, but it's undeserved in the sense that he was already very sophisticated about these matters. So did that mean that, you know, if you didn't have to do a kind of, let's go back to high school level 101 kind of tutoring or, or college level, that more of it was, was about implications, was about different policy decisions? A lot of it was about uh, how we could craft initiatives mm -hmm. that would more effectively apply science and technology to big societal issues like climate change, like clean energy, like biomedicine and public health, mm -hmm. uh, like cybersecurity. How can we improve our ability to develop new vaccines quickly when we need to? Uh, what can we do to uh, move the needle on not just climate change mitigation, reducing emissions, but also climate change adaptation, preparedness, and resilience for the changes in climate that we no longer can avoid? There was in the president's mind, uh, virtually always a practical issue uh, on which science and technology could contribute. But the other interesting thing about this president, and it showed in the speech he gave to the National Academy of Sciences just a, a few months after being inaugurated the first time, uh, he was the first president since JFK to go to the National Academy of Sciences and address the annual meeting at his first opportunity. In that talk, he talked for more than half the time about the importance of fundamental science. Uh, basic research, that basic research uh, produces the seed corn from which future applied advances are going to come. We cannot neglect it. It's a fundamental responsibility of government. He expressed some ambitious goals of what he wanted to get done in research budgets. Those goals we were never able actually to meet because of the fiscal stringency and the, the limits imposed uh, principally by the Congress mm -hmm. on the federal budget. But uh, this was a president who from the start uh, understood not only the importance of science and technology for specific challenges, but he understood the importance of investing in fundamental research. How was it? Like, this sounds like an exhausting job. Was it fun? Was it bad days? Was it good days? You know, how was you, what was the emotional experience of this thing? It, it, for me, it was wonderful. I had spent most of my adult life thinking about the intersection of science and technology with big pu public policy issues, with climate change, with energy technology and policy, with nuclear arms control and nonproliferation. And... It was just a wonderful opportunity to be able to work with not only a president of the United States, but this president of the United States on those issues. He wanted science and technology at the table uh, for policy discussions where science and technology might be germane, and that was most of them. Yeah. Uh, so I had a lot of opportunities to interact with the president and his other senior staff. I was at the table, and my team was at the table when meetings were held at, at lower than the, the level of the principals. And it was a great experience. Uh, that doesn't mean every day was a wonderful day. There were a lot of 
crises, of course, there always are unexpected things. We didn't expect the Gulf oil spill. Uh, we didn't expect the Fukushima nuclear accident in Japan, in which the United States had a big role in working with Japan to deal with that. We didn't expect Ebola. We didn't expect Zika. Uh, we didn't expect swine flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of those you know, put a crimp in other activities at the time because you basically had to mobilize resources to address the crisis uh, of the moment. But we also had a lot of time to think up and craft and implement initiatives. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the biomedical space, the uh, initiative on combating antibiotic resistance, the brain initiative, the precision medicine initiative, the cancer moonshot, really an extraordinary array of initiatives to mobilize the science and technology capabilities of the government and focus them on getting better health outcomes for more Americans at affordable cost. You look at the initiatives in relation to the economy, the investments in broadband, in information technology, in advanced computing capabilities, in advanced manufacturing, the National Network for Manufacturing Innovation. This, again, was a president who didn't just want to talk about problems. He wanted to talk about what we could do using the resources of the federal government and the authority of the executive branch particularly because after the 2010 midterm elections, we weren't getting a huge amount of cooperation from the Congress. Congress continued to support the biomedical initiatives. Those generally are favorites uh, of Congress. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had greater challenges with the Congress on climate change uh, and clean energy. Some of my... um, let's say, less pleasant days involved congressional testimony where it was pretty clear that the majority on the committee were mainly interested in discrediting the witness. Uh, I was, I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, I was going to ask about that. You know, I watched that uh, clip on The Daily Show yes. uh, with John Stewart. And, uh, you know, it's, it's painful to watch, right? Like it's, it's painful for the viewer who is um, persuaded that climate change is an important issue and that there are serious topics on the table right. that uh, it, and, and it looks like political theater. That looks like some of your toughest days, actually, sort of getting thrown to the wolves in Congress, who, from my account, looks like a kind of willful ignorance, right? Like that, yeah, there was, certainly, there was certainly some of that. I mean, there are uh, a lot of good, good members of Congress who actually ask serious questions aimed at increasing their understanding of what's going on, but there were certainly others who were mainly interested in trying to embarrass you. But that's always been true in congressional hearings. They, they, we, we used to call it pinata day when I had to testify because you hang there and they take swings at you with a big stick hoping to break you open and some candy will fall out where the candy is defined as something that embarrasses the administration. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask about, like, what is the strategy there with that? Cause, and, and pinata day sounds about right. So, uh, you know, on, on pinata day, what do you tell yourself walking into that? Well, first of all, we all understand that that's part of the job, that interacting with Congress is part of the job. But... At OSTP, we are, in a way, the president's emissaries uh, to not just the Congress, but the wider science and technology community. OSTP so, being so the Office of Science. Office of Science and Technology mm-hmm. Policy. We know we have to do that. Uh, I had been involved in science advice uh, to government for decades in lesser and part-time capacities, so I was not unfamiliar with what happens in congressional hearings. And you prepare as best you can. Uh, you think about the kinds of questions you might get asked. And then you go in there and do your best. But above all, you have to keep your cool. You have to keep your sense of humor. You know, you have to avoid uh, getting in trouble on contempt of Congress by uh, showing disdain or arrogance. But, you know, I didn't find it all that painful. I kind of enjoyed some of those hearings. Uh, some of them were less enjoyable. But um, it's, part of the, it's part of the job. And huh. everybody knows you need to do it. 
And if you do a good job, it gets noticed. I mean, the most notice I ever got was when Jon Stewart put a clip based on my Q&A uh, on climate change onto the, onto the Daily Show. It, uh, it had a remarkable effect. The next day, I was in New York City for a big UN climate meeting, and people were stopping me on the street asking for selfies. <laughs> uh, I, I've never had that kind of exposure before, I can assure you. But, uh, but the Daily Show with Jon Stewart did it. Um. That's so interesting. I mean, the the sort of I think the tension of a moment like that where you don't want to come across as arrogant, but you're being asked some some really pretty, you know, almost insulting questions like that. That seems like a tough balance to strike. And the kind of like tedium around that of like, OK, we've got to cover this ground again while not coming off as a jerk. Right. While not having it look bad. That seems like I mean, like you said, all part of the job. But it also seems like may be part of the responsibility for all climate science communicators, which is why I bring it up, which is why I ask yeah, for No, it, 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 it is a challenge, but, you know, I was an academic for 38 years before going into government, so I spent a lot of time uh, lecturing, talking to classes, answering questions, and, you know, in the academic world, one of the rules of thumb is there's no such thing as a stupid question. You should never, never, ever ridicule the questioner and assume that the question is a dumb one. You should treat every question seriously. Some questions that might strike you at first as dumb are sometimes very insightful. And so I'd had a lot of practice uh, with Q&A yeah. and, uh, and had a lot of practice respecting the questioners. And so I think that was helpful in my testimony. And people would sometimes tell me afterwards, how did you possibly keep your cool? But there's no point in losing your cool. There's no benefit in losing your cool in a congressional hearing. Doesn't mean it's not hard to keep it, though. Or at least that's what I see if I were in your shoes. But I'm not, for good reasons, probably. But anyway, I want to ask a little bit of a kind of bit of a devil's advocate question. But, well, okay, let me, let me put it this way. My read on how climate science is being communicated as an issue is that there's been a movement in the last 15, 20 years or so uh, to frame it more in terms of its economic costs and its risks, and maybe at the expense of some of the sort of more core traditional environmental talking points, extinction or habitat destruction or those sorts of things. Maybe that's for the best, right? Because I do think that this is an environmental issue with major economic um, costs and, and serious risk to society. But sometimes I wonder if something's lost uh, as we've sort of, as the conversations migrated. And I'm curious to hear your reaction to that. I don't find that to be so, but I may be biased by the way, I tend to talk about climate with audiences. I give a lot of uh, lectures uh, on climate change, and uh, I start with what the science is telling us about climate change, uh, how we know it's changing, how we know humans uh, are the principal culprits in changing it, what the ongoing symptoms we're already experiencing are. Uh, I talk about all that stuff, and most of the people I know and work closely with in the climate science community also talk about that stuff. And then we, we turn to the question of, okay, what can we do about it? What more is needed? What kinds of policies could get us there? And then I address the question uh, toward the end of, so what are the economics of this? Is it true, as some critics say, that we'll break the bank trying to address this problem and not have much effect anyway? And I go through an, an argument that says, no, we will not break the bank. And that, in fact, the costs of prudent uh, and sensible action are overwhelmingly likely to be much smaller than the costs of the damages that will ensue if we don't take that action. Uh, so uh, I have certainly not myself fallen into the 
into the trap of failing to talk about what science tells us before talking about how we can deal with it and what it will cost. Sure, yeah, no, I mean, I think I think what I meant by the question is that I think in the 90s, especially, which is sort of when I came of age with this issue, that it was presented to me as as a strictly environmental problem. And therefore, I had a framework of other kinds of mm-hmm. environmental problems. And and now I think it's, it's a bigger, messier, more complicated, more economically consequential uh, issue than that. And there's a part of me that that wonders, you know, is, is all that OK? But. Uh, or is all that right? I guess I guess it probably is, but th- that's sort of what I meant. Just not yeah. not, not simply the economic well, cost. No, I think it is right. I mean, I have said for a long time since I started writing about climate change uh, in uh, 1969 and 1970 that climate change is the most complex uh, environmental issue the world has ever faced, and it is complex in part because it interacts with the economic system, with the social system, it interacts with poverty, it interacts with development, it interacts with uh, national security. And what has happened over the years, I think, is the recognition has grown about that complexity and the, and the extent of those interactions to the point where we've now had the Pentagon writing forward-leaning papers about climate change as a national security threat. Uh, and you've had the business community standing up with commitments to reduce their own emissions uh, and with statements that they expected their emissions reductions to save them money. Mm. Um, And so it has become a much broader issue in the sense of all these different facets being understood not just by the hardcore analysts but by the wider communities that are affected. Yeah, and I guess that to me is... An important point, some uh, some a point I, I've I've made in conversations and in previous interviews is that uh, sometimes I'm not sure if we've done the work as communicators in talking about why climate is important. Like, forget climate change for a second. Mm-hmm. I mean, we live in our own bubbles these days. We stare at our iPhones. We are in our cars. We're watching Netflix. We're paying the mortgage. We're going about our day, right? And I I feel like the grand dream of history has pushed us towards a, a style of modernity and living where we feel like we're free and insulated from environmental risks. And and I think that that's part of the challenge in sort of like having the message about the risk posed by climate change sink in a little deeper. You know, it's, it's uh, interesting that you say that because my own view is that precisely people have become erroneously convinced that modern technology has made us independent of the environment. And the fact is that natural processes, natural conditions and processes still govern most of the availability of water, most of the productivity of the soil, most of the productivity of the forests. They govern uh, the circulation of nutrients. Most controls of pests and pathogens are natural controls. And that message has still not gotten through. Ecosystem services, environmental conditions and processes remain immensely important to human well-being, and we uh, mess up those conditions and processes at our peril as a society. And climate change is maybe now the most conspicuous example of that, but there are many others. The loss of biodiversity, which of course is not unconnected with climate change, but has other causes as well. Uh, The loss of biodiversity is a little bit like burning down a unique library before you have cataloged the books, never mind uh, reading them. There's biodiversity uh, has been and could be in the future the source of new food crops, new drugs, new vaccines, uh, new insights to improve the human condition. 
But if we burn that library down before we know how to read the books, we will not get those benefits. And that's really what the biodiversity issue uh, is about. Yeah, and no, it's, it's uh, the raw ingredients with which we tinker and which yeah. we innovate. And, of course, Aldo Leopold in his famous book, The Sand County Almanac, which is maybe an environmental book before your time, uh, had one wonderful line that said, the first law of intelligent tinkering is to save all the parts. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, so, you know, th th this actually sort of leads me to exactly where I, I want to go in terms of the role of science and, and facts and, and where we are here in 2017. What we're talking about in terms of the importance of the environment, the global environment for modern livelihoods and modern economies um, is a matter of perception in some sense. And I fear that there are people trapped in technological bubbles in a sense that have forgotten uh, that we depend on the life support systems of the planet for all manner of well-being. And that willful or, or unintentional ability to ignore reality seems more enabled today than it's ever been before. And that's sort of my great fear, is that reality is less relevant and less important, and that science as an institution and as a place of, of trust in, in communal psyche uh, is at risk. But maybe that's uh, hysterical and alarmist. What's your take? Well, first of all, uh, I am alarmed by what we've seen so far in the Trump administration. We can't know yet uh, what all the administration will do. Uh, but it's not a good sign uh, that uh, President Trump has appointed and gotten confirmed a climate change skeptic as the head of the Environmental Protection Agency. That's a bad sign. Uh, it is uh, a bad sign that he uh, appointed a critic of public education to be the Secretary of Education. Um, and uh, it is a bad sign that a lot of the government data that has been online is no longer online, except that private parties have archived a lot of it, so it will continue to become available. The uh, website of the Office of Science and Technology Policy was taken down by the afternoon of the inauguration. Uh, so there's a, there's a real worry about the stance of the new administration uh, with respect to data, with respect to uh, science. There's uh, certainly a fair amount of evidence uh, th that the president and his principal spokespersons have difficulty distinguishing reality from what they wish reality would be. That's the one that scares uh, me the most. One has to worry about the role of uh, facts and evidence in what the administration is saying. I hope that things do not turn out as badly as they now look, but I'm very worried for science uh, simply uh, in the sense of what is likely to be cut back if uh, President Trump keeps his promises about the budget. Mm -hmm. uh, he has said that he's going to cut taxes, increase defense spending, spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure, and not touch Social Security and Medicare. And if he does all those things, that means deep cuts in research and development, deep cuts in government programs in education, uh, uh, really devastating cuts uh, across a wide range of important government functions that, again, support the well-being of the American people. I mean, this attitude that government is the enemy and, uh, and we've got to shrink it is, uh, I think, a very dangerous attitude. Of course, you can increase the efficiency and effectiveness of government. We've worked hard at that in the Obama administration. But the idea that government is the enemy and the solution is to slash it uh, is a very dangerous uh, idea. 
No, especially given the United States' role in sort of the, you know, maintaining the upkeep of the monitoring systems of the entire planet. I mean, it's not just about our country. It's, a, it's an international concern. Absolutely right. And we are supposed to be leaders in this space. We are leaders today mm. in science and technology. We're leaders in Earth observation. Uh, we're leaders in our stance on climate policy. And if we surrender that leadership voluntarily, you have to ask, who's going to take it over? One thing that is clear is China would be happy to take it over. Uh, is that actually in our interest, uh, leaving China the sole uh, global leader in, in these spaces? I don't think that's in our interest at all. Certainly, I'm worried about the practical um, uh, implications of what it means to slash budgets and to lose the monitoring capacity of Earth observation systems. Um, but I'm, I'm a little bit more unsettled on this question of shaping reality. For the people and yes. shaping perceptions. So I'm curious to hear you speak to that point. No, well. I, I am in complete agreement. You know, some people ask me, uh, aren't you uh, horrified by uh, what may happen to our climate policy under President Trump? And I say I'm more horrified, uh, actually, in the, in the short run about what happens to our foreign policy. Uh, can we uh, avoid another nuclear arms race? Uh, can we stay out of a major war? And, and that's all, again, related to the uh, ability and willingness to take facts on board, to take evidence into account. You know, I used to tell my students all the time uh, that the technical facts aren't everything, but they're usually something. It's unwise to make policy unaware of what technical analysis, scientific analysis, economic analysis, engineering analysis has to say about a given situation. Yeah. Um this has been a wonderful conversation. The last thing I wanted to ask is uh, if you wanted to weigh in on this Anthropocene debate, Anthropocene as you called it, uh, you know, we sometimes it's corny, but uh, we ask our interview subjects, you know, there's been various proposed boundaries uh, about where this new geologic age begins or whether or not it's even valid to consider ourselves as being in a new geologic age based on the global footprint of humankind. Do you got a take? Agricultural revolution. Oh, I love it. Why? Because that was the beginning of large-scale transformations of land and vegetation. Uh, before that, there were some transformations in species abundance uh, associated with hunting. But the agricultural revolution was really the beginning of large-scale transformation of land and vegetation. And if you ask yourself today, what are the largest disruptors of global environmental conditions and processes? The two answers are agriculture and energy. Uh, agriculture remains an enormous part of this, and it began with the beginning of the agricultural revolution. I think you ought to uh, let the former president know that, and you know, if he wants to weigh in on the conversation, uh, we'll happily take his call anytime. So great, <laughs> happy to do that. Uh, John Holdren, what a uh, honor and a pleasure! Thank you for your service, and uh, best of luck with uh, the next phase of things. Thank you, appreciate it. Thank you to John Holdren for taking the time to come into studio. And thanks also to Megan Shea for helping us to coordinate this interview. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Traer, Jackson Roach, and me, Leslie Chang. Special thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at www.genanthro.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at Gen Anthropocene. If you like what we do, right now the best way you can support us is to please leave a review or rating on iTunes. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode.